Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time on and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Let us worship the Lord our God. Comforted me. Good God, I, I will 
with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call on God's name. Make known God's deeds among the nations. Proclaim that the Lord's name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for God has done gloriously. Let this be known to all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O Lord of Zion. For great is your mercy to the Holy One of Israel. We give thanks to you, Lord, for you have done marvelous things. When we were walking in darkness, you were there. When we were kneeling in weakness, you were there. When we drew near fearing worthless, you were there. When we were needing forgiveness, you were there. When we were searching for your grace, you were there. We give thanks to you, Lord, for you have done marvelous things. You may be seated. Grace to you and peace and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those gathered here in this sanctuary as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather together in the name of the Lord. And because it is in God's name that we have gathered, that means our word of welcome is one with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever. All are welcome in God's house, and all are welcome at the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I'd like to invite everyone, members and guests alike, to sign the friendship pad, which you will find located on your pew. Sign it, please, even if you're the only person on the pew. And if there are others on your pew, send it down and back again so that we may have the advantage of each other's names at the conclusion of this service. And likewise, for those worshiping virtually, you'll find that on the same page that has the link to the service, there is a virtual friendship pad. We would love to know who is worshiping at home in another location, so please do sign in on our virtual friendship pad as well. I'd also like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service, which will take place in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door, down a short ramp, and there you will find some light refreshments that our deacons have prepared, but perhaps most importantly, the opportunity to engage with one another deeply as a community of faith. I'd like to highlight several things that are in your bulletin, and this is one of those Sundays where I, list, I risk just reading you the announcements, but I am going to call them to your attention particularly. The first is our ongoing celebration of the 150th anniversary of the dedication of this building has included some wonderful historical tours, and today we will get to the outside of the building, but everyone should gather here in the sanctuary to go with Michael Smith to look around the outside of the building at some of the marvelous symbolism and carving on the outside of this church structure. So gather back here after you get your cookie and your coffee and go on a tour of the outside of the building. I'd like to highlight as well that at 2.30 today, there will be a concert here in the sanctuary. Ed Andrew and Edward will be playing, and I am told there are lots of notes. Lots of notes. Uh, <clears throat> next Sunday, we will also gather back here in the afternoon and that will be for a blessing of the animals. This is something we've done before, but a long time ago. So if you missed your opportunity to get your pet blessed on the feast day of St. Francis, this is a second chance blessing of the animals next Sunday at 2 o'clock here in the sanctuary. Your pets are welcome if they are in a carrier or on a leash. But if that is 
bridge too far, they are also welcome in photographic representation. It'll be a brief service, and we look forward to giving thanks to God for the animals that brighten our lives. I'd like to highlight as well that our, young fa our families with young children uh, are looking to learn a little bit about what's a priority for us as a congregation, and Crystal Reek will be leading a listening session next Sunday at 10 a.m. Crystal's behind me in the choir here. Uh, there we are. Um, just speak to Crystal if you'd like to contribute to that, or if, if you're not able to be here and like to get some thoughts across, she would love to hear from you. So please do participate in that, particularly if you have young children and are interested in, in being a part of how we determine what we're going to do going forward with reference to that ministry. Finally, but not least important, we are in the midst of our annual campaign, and if you did not receive a pledge card and you would like one, they are in the narthex, they are in the church office, they are all over the church, and we will get you one if you don't have one. But if you didn't receive your stewardship mailing with wonderful information about a lot of the fabulous things we do here at this church, and you'd like to receive one, just contact the church office so we can make sure to send one out to you straight away, and we probably have some paper copies lying around the, the church as well. I believe that covers it. So with all these things noted, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. We are imperfect. God calls us to be bold, and we seek comfort. God calls us to love others, and we put ourselves first. God calls us to care deeply, and we choose to be numb. Let us be honest with God and each other as we speak our shortcomings plainly, knowing that our Creator hears us and will not turn away. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned. Where we have created us for genuine community, we have huddled with those of like mind. Where you have created us to rest in your constant care, we have failed to trust. Where you have created us to give of ourselves with generosity of spirit to all we need, we have held back from doing what we can. We have not sought to sin. We simply haven't lived as you created us to live. We stand in need of forgiveness. How grateful we are that you stand more ready to forgive than we are to act. So forgive us. Call us once more to trusting discipleship. We pray in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Love changes us. 
It defines us. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. first scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the gospel according to Luke in the 21st chapter starting at the fifth verse when some were speaking about the temple how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God he said as for these things that you see the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, Beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, 
but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your mind not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your soul. Our second reading comes from the book of Jeremiah or of Isaiah in the 55th chapter, starting with the 17th verse. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered a curse. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Our final scripture reading is taken from the Epistle to the Romans, the sixth chapter, beginning at the first verse and continuing through the eleventh. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. <clears throat> what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may increase? By no means. How can we who have died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, so that 
just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed, so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin, but if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has any dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If we are going to talk about living in sin, we should all agree on what that is, don't you think? I asked some clergy friends the question, what is living in sin? Now, knowing my audience, I decided to load the question just a little bit. So I added, answer without using the word S-E. Because I know these friends, and for a few of them, it's a bit of an obsession. Now, how would you answer that question? What I learned subsequently is that some of my colleagues are very gifted with language. I have never seen a finer collection of euphemisms. My favorite straight answer, by the way, was that of a classmate of mine who answered simply, living in Brown Hall. I lived in Brown Hall, and I don't remember it ever being that interesting. Now, there were other answers, of course. 
But there was, despite my strict instructions, still a decided bent toward matters of a carnal nature. The Apostle Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, begins the sixth chapter with the question, how can we, who have died to sin, go on living in it? Now, in some of Paul's letters, if he asked a question like that, he would give a very specific answer as to what exactly constituted living in sin. In the pastoral epistles, for instance, it might be spelled G-O-S-S-I-P. In the Corinthian letters, Paul might have spelled it G-R-E-E-D. In Galatians, it might be, and I'm going to stop spelling now so we're not here all day. In Galatians, Paul defines sin as imposing super standards on others that Christ never asked from us. In other words, as Paul seeks to address concrete situations of sin that he encountered among the Christians he sought to guide, what constituted sin was frequently situational. It varied widely from church to church. One church's sin wasn't the same as another, just as my sin might be different from your sin. But here in Romans, Paul is doing something else. Romans is a foundational book. It, it, it's sort of an introduction to Christian theology. In Romans, I, I believe Paul is doing exactly what Jesus alluded to in the gospel lesson today. He is knocking everything down to the foundation in order to build up what is helpful. One foundational question might be, what is sin? Classically, there are two definitions for sin, original and actual. Original sin can be understood both literally and metaphorically. Augustinian thought concentrates on the literal understanding, and sin is transmitted in the same way as DNA and is just as immutable. And if you'll permit me to be a little crass, sin for Augustine is an STD. Liberal Protestantism, however, takes a metaphorical approach. Niebuhr calls it the paradox of the inevitability of sin and the responsibility of humankind for it. And Tillich says it's the reality that the exercise of freedom causes us to be estranged from others and ourselves. I've always thought, however, that Flannery O'Connor nailed it when she put it this way. You ain't got to. You can't help it. Actual sin is just exactly what it sounds like. The act that constitutes the sin, whether we enjoyed it or not. 
To understand that, let's turn to Karl Barth, who wrote, as an event, sin is that interchanging of God and man, that exalting of men to divinity and depressing of God to humanity, by which we seek to justify and fortify and establish ourselves. To live in sin, Bart adds, means that by in, in, an invisible necessity, we cannot do otherwise than willfully and consciously to exalt ourselves to di divinity and depress God to our own level. Again, you ain't got to. You can't help it. How, indeed, can we go on living in it? And yet we know we do. Later on, Paul says that sin is what makes him do what he doesn't want to do and not do what he wish he had. Can any of you relate to that? Or maybe, maybe you can relate to brokenness. Brokenness in society, brokenness in ourselves. That, that's really what sin is also. And the truth is we all know that broken relationships hurt. They hurt us. They hurt the fabric of the community in which we live. Show me a family with a broken relationship in it and I will show you a family in pain. I understand that folks sometimes shy away from the doctrine of the Trinity as we consider the deeper problems of our faith. It seems so esoteric, so easy to get wrong. Indeed, some of those very theologians that I just cited claim that every heresy the church ever dealt with was Trinitarian in nature, meaning as we try to wrap our minds around the fact that God is both one and three, we inevitably get something wrong. And maybe we do. But we also learn this from the doctrine of the Trinity. God's own definition of self is in mutual love. And we're made in that image, God's image. We're made for mutual love. We are created to love ourselves and others, at least to the extent that we reflect the image of God, who is three persons bound together in one being by bonds of love. And when those bonds of love are broken or strained or put to the test, pain follows. We are made for love. And we don't always succeed at it, do we? And what happens next can be very painful. And yet the work of God's grace is the repairing work in ourselves and in our lives. And to understand this, I am going to borrow an old line from the Lutherans, simul justus et peccator, the Latin phrase, and here's what it means. It means we are simultaneously saints and sinners, every one of us all the time. That's why we sin in our best deeds as well as in our worst. We are never not a sinner. And yet, we are never not God's beloved, redeemed, chosen, useful, 
and good creation. Hold those two together. We're never not a sinner, and we're never not God's beloved, which is why Paul will ask, how can we go on living in sin? And the answer that follows is that in Jesus Christ, we are raised to newness of life. But how, you may ask exactly, does that happen? What does that look like? And again, the Bible uses metaphor to describe this. We speak of being washed of our sin. The psalmist talks of being bleached of our impurities. That's a fetching thought, isn't it? Bring out the Clorox. This sin goes deep. Of course, there's also the language of the refiner's fire. Paul likes that language. Flannery O'Connor, again, captures the language just right. Even our virtues are being burned away, which I take that down to a base level of this sin is going to require a blowtorch. The language of overcoming sin is big language. It's expansive language because sin is a problem, a real problem. And if the language of overcoming this problem in our life of faith and our lives at large seems a bit violent at times, let's be honest about it. Birth isn't always an easy process, is it? What we're talking about is the rebirth to new life, the death of the old self and the raising up of the new. Birth and death are difficult, messy, biological processes, and yet that too is the language of change. Now, just as language and analogy will break down if they are pressed too hard to explain such things as the Trinity, they will also fail if we press them too hard as we confront our own sin. Nevertheless, I want to press ahead by suggesting that perhaps we can approach the problem of living in sin constructively rather than destructively. Here's what I mean by that. We can work on repairing our relationship with ourselves. And then we work on repairing our relationships with others. I and thou, entre nous, between us. And then finally, and not last, we work on the repair of our relationship with God. Let's start with you and me, for that matter. To be real with ourselves about our own sin, we have to confront the jerk in us. <clears throat> Seriously. We begin flipping the order and concentrating on the repair of our relationship with God because everything flows from that. John Calvin said that human imagination is a veritable factory for idols, and what he meant by that is that our conceptions of God, by extension, will be distorted. But that's also, also true of our perceptions of ourselves. In the 19th century, Ludwig Feuerbach's work, The Essence of Christianity, suggested that God, or our understanding of the infinite, is nothing more than a projection of our best and worst aspects, an idol, in fact. There's a great deal with which I disagree with Feuerbach, not least of which is that he was an atheist, whereas I am a Christian minister. But I think he was on to something with the projection of ourselves onto the infinite. Because if we get 
God wrong. We can't get the image of God right. If we cannot understand the image of God, we cannot see what God wants us to see in ourselves. And that's living in sin, folks. It's broken. It's messed up. And it's not what God created us for. Repairing our relationship with ourselves requires repairing our relationship with God. It means seeing ourselves the way God sees us. That means taking the time to understand God rightly so that the image we see reflected is right. Do you know how God sees us? God looks at us through the lens of Jesus Christ. God looks at us in all our messiness and sees Jesus Christ. That's what the doctrine of justification is. It is God seeing us as though we are sinless, even though we're nowhere close to that. It's no great mystery that many of us are our own harshest critics. There are plenty of ways we wind up in this fix, by the way. We take on the baggage of social and familial expectations, and then we internalize them. Sometimes that takes the form of believing the shaming verbiage of others. Other times we create this mess entirely for ourselves. We take something harmless, an error perhaps, nothing more, or even a small deficiency, and we make it into something. We build it up into something that is damaging. I mean, there, there's self-deprecation. I'm a fan of self-deprecation. But then there's actually believing that you're not smart enough or talented enough or good enough. When that happens, try looking at yourself the way God does. Through the lens of Jesus Christ. It is guaranteed to improve the view. But don't get too accustomed to that view because we're not done with it yet. We still need to repair our relationship with others. And to do that, we come back to confronting the fact that we are sometimes, every one of us, jerks. In his article, The Essence of Jerkitude, Author Eric Fitzgabel writes, All normal jerks distribute their jerkishness mostly down the social hierarchy and to anonymous strangers. Waitresses, students, clerks, strangers on the road, these are the unfortunates who bear the brunt of it. With a modicum of self-control, the jerk, though he implicitly or explicitly regards himself as more important than most of the people around him, recognizes that the perspectives above, of, of those above him in the hierarchy also deserve some consideration. In other words, pay attention to how you treat others. It says a great deal about you and what you think of yourself. 
And Fitzgable concludes, the classic jerk kisses up and kicks down. The company CEO rarely knows who the jerks are, but it's no great mystery among the secretaries. And this is where looking at the world through Jesus Christ comes back in. Because just as we are to look at ourselves through the lens of Jesus, we need to look at others that way too. It's that simple. And it's not. It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes work. Is your brain tired yet? If it is, it's because we've been swimming in the deep end of a theological pool. But that's what Paul is writing about later in Romans when he says that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I suspect that's also a bit of what it means to be baptized into death with Jesus so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. I mean, you can go on living in sin. The choice is, is largely yours. But that's not grace. Indeed, let me close with the words of Karl Barth one more time. Justification is the act of God by which we are not left as we are, but are wholly transformed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
us now together proclaim what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. We have freely received God's marvelous grace through Jesus Christ. Let us respond with generosity.
are glad and rejoice forever in you, O God. With joy we draw deeply from your well of salvation and pray that you may fulfill our story, the story of your love. Though the world has been gripped by trouble since early days, and life has often been scorched and tormented, you have given us a vision of a day beyond the terrors, a day when the heavens and earth will be new again, a day when the sound of weeping will give way to delight, a time when all creation will live in peace and people will long enjoy the fruits of their labors. Help us to hold to that vision when the temples about us are falling and our world is shaken. Strengthen us for the telling of your truth and for keeping to your path that we may not weary in doing what is right, but through endurance may gain our souls, even as you desire for us to do. As we pray for a new heaven and a new earth this day, we especially are aware of those among us and those beyond these doors who are in deep need of your peace, of your healing touch, of your just and bounteous kingdom. We pray for those who dwell in places of strife, need, and want. We pray for those who are grieving. We pray for those who are unemployed and those who fear layoff or termination, and for all those who are struggling with a burden in the workplace or the marketplace. We pray for those of our siblings who face persecution because of their faith, for those who are deprived of their basic human rights, for those who have been victims or lost people due to gun violence, for those in places far and near whose lives have been upended by natural disasters. Lord, we give it thanks that you hear all of our prayers, that you care for us, that you are the one who heals this troubled world, the sick, those who turn to you in faith, that you are the one who grants new life not only to us, but to creation itself. Gracious God, we pray to you in the name of the one who came to show us the way, our Lord and our Redeemer, our brother and friend. We pray to you as one family, the prayer that he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
we covered two key doctrines of the faith today. Justification, that's the one with the Jesus filter, and sanctification, that's the one that involves the Clorox and the blowtorch. And what I have to say to you is that justification is instantaneous. God already sees you as though you are Jesus Christ right now in this very moment. But sanctification, that bit takes longer. That's the part where God starts to make us actually look like Jesus. In reality, that bit takes every bit of this life and the life that is yet to come. But what else were we going to do? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen.